0: Hey, hey, everyone, what's going on? Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to share with you how stoked I am that the First Act podcast has seen such a significant increase in viewership over the last month. For those of you who have been writing me direct messages asking for advice, I really appreciate that. Keep them coming. I want to provide you as much value as I can. So if you have any questions you'd like for me to ask one of our guests, I will do that if you send me a message on LinkedIn. Today, we have Phil Ranta, an executive and futurist in the online media and gaming industry. As a pioneer in this field, he has worked with numerous companies, two of which were acquired in the past six years. Phil's path in this industry is extremely unique. He's worked at Facebook and also as a comedian for a cruise line. What he's working on now will be a major part of the future of social networking and gaming. This one, you don't want to miss. And now... Hosted by Harry G. This is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's
1: your top dog with info that can't be bought. It's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the first act podcast.
0: Cause so you must have grown up in the eighties then. Yeah, I grew I was born in 82.
1: But yeah, I feel like uh I, I feel like in a weird way I'm part of this weird generation where Internet really started hitting when I was in junior high. Uh, Grunge really started hitting right when I was starting to get into music. Like sixth grade is when like Nirvana started becoming big. Right. And then like right as I entered college, I was the first year at University of Michigan where Ethernet was in every room. So I kind of like was right right as I aged to certain trends, the important thing launched. And then, of course, when I graduated college, I graduated with a film degree. Uh, and two thousand and five was when YouTube launched.
0: So everything kind of just like perfectly aligned for my career. So you know, it's a lot of people are talking about right place at the right time, but there's certainly a luck component to it, right? When oh, you yeah. were born has a lot to do with the career path that you end up taking.
1: well, it's all it's weird because. I feel like there's some people who are always looking for the new exciting thing and to lean into it and learn as much. And there's something of that of every generation. So some could call it luck, but you know, the fact that Bill Gates uh, was able to have access to one of the few computers when he was in college and then, you know, used it as much as possible. If he was born 20 years earlier, I wonder if it would have been another thing, right? Maybe he would be like a radio guy or a television guy, like, I feel like there's some people who are just always looking for the next new. So people go, Oh, that was lucky. They were born then. It's like, yeah, but who would have known what they would have done if they were born at another time. You know, I will say this, even though I was, did a lot of content in the past, I was a comedian for a while. I am deeply uncreative. I am not a creative person. I'm a logic person and I'm a puzzle person. So I was always good at like standardized tests. I would always like not have to go to math and still get an A cause I didn't have to learn the formulas. I could just kind of reason it out in my head. Right. Um, but when I was in things like English class and I, you know, it, I, I needed to find a way of thinking that worked for me in order to do stuff like comedy. And finally I did. It's like, if you view a joke as a puzzle, instead of as something that comes out of thin air, you can actually do pretty well in comedy without an ounce of creativity.
0: Wow. You know, a lot of people, I'm sure probably a lot of comedians do think of it like that. Some successful ones, right? Because there's probably something formulaic. There's, there's a lot of books you can
1: buy. that are like the seven rules of comedy and blah, blah, blah. But really what comedy is about is having a setup that lulls people into an expectation and then there's an obvious answer and then there's a less obvious answer. And then there's an even less obvious answer. If you keep following that trail down until you go from a to B and instead go from a to Z, then eventually you're going to land on the thing that evokes a laugh. Right. Right. So it actually is very logical when you think about it. It's just like you, you need to constantly have your brain were through those paths as soon as possible, especially when you're doing improv, which was kind of something I did for a lot of years. So you go like, this is the obvious answer. This is the last obvious answer. This answer will lead to even more zaniness and it seems right. And therefore I'm going with this and you need to do all of that in real time,
0: you know? Right. I loved improv. I did a little bit of improv in high school and you know, yes. we were only like six of us, but it was so much fun. So six much is fun.
1: enough for a team. You got a Herald team right
0: there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's kind of start at the start. So from what I can gather from what you've, told me from what I've seen on you know what's out there on the internet you're from Michigan originally, right yep
1: yep grand uh, Grandville which is a suburb of
0: Grand Rapids, Michigan yep so Westside okay. some of the best breweries in the world um, okay so then then you studied at University of Michigan. What did you study when you were there? So
1: when I started there, I was a computer science major so and it was a very competitive computer science school because my goal was to go to Google or Pixar. Pixar was just starting to pick up and I was obsessed. I thought it was awesome. Um, So I was doing a lot of computer animation stuff, but of course, like a lot of math. And at that point, um, in order to compile your code, you know, no kind of computer that I could afford at that time could do it. So I'd have to go down to the computer labs. Right. So I didn't really have like friends or go to parties for a couple of years. I was like, heads down, I'm going to achieve this thing. Then my junior year, I got mono, so I had to drop a bunch of computer classes because I got sick. And then I kind of reevaluated my life and went, "Wait a second, the reason why I wanted to go to Pixar is because I love movies. Right. It's not because I love programming." So I dropped all my computer science stuff my junior year, picked up a film and video major, and I finished in
0: that. Wow. And so, were you thinking about job prospects off out of this at all, or were you? You know, what were you, what was your family thinking at the time? I don't think my
1: family was super happy about it. They're, you know, my uh, dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, my brother's a lawyer. They're all okay. very pragmatic. Um, so I think that they were worried. At that time, honestly, like, I was, I was, what, 21 years old? I wasn't thinking about the future. I was like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to go work in the film industry, and I'll be fine. I was probably cockier than I thought I'd be. And at that right. time, I was already doing live comedy, so I was like, well, I'm just going to be... On Saturday Night Live, or maybe my fallback is I'll be a writer on Saturday Night Live, or you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. Um, I was probably over, well, definitely overly confident at the time, but
0: that that was the vision for a long time. Well, I guess it makes sense, right? Like if you were doing comedy during college, and I guess you were getting some laughs, you must. Have I was been. getting some laughs. I wasn't. I I don't think I was ever the best person on any night, but I think
1: that I was like. I, I felt like I was a pretty good writer and I was a poor performer and that's why I struggled to get the laughs I'm like I, I thought I had the best material I'm just not as good as other people like act
0: outs or yeah right there's a lot that goes into it that I think a lot of people don't think about and I'm a bad memorizer I'm still a bad memorizer and that's like I think
1: that it, it can't be understated how specific of an art form standup is like you need to once you refine your act you need to get every word in place every pause in place and i would honestly like i would tell a joke 50 times and get it right and on the 51st my mind would blank and it's, right. I've, it's i've always been like that like i've always whenever i had to take a history test in high school it was a disaster
0: because i just don't retain information well a good thing you're not a doctor or a surgeon then right yeah
1: it would be a nightmare yeah i feel like i could do surgery because i feel like my muscle memory
0: is good right or logic figure it out you're right like, okay, totally. well this vein is connected to the heart and i don't want to cut that one
1: right i'd be like the neck neck bones connected the shoulder bone the shoulder bones. Connected. okay i got <laughs> it
0: i got it uh yeah it'd be a nightmare your study you switched from computer science to film and video studies mm-hmm. and you had this idea or this dream of being a com- of, of being a comic, right, or a comedic yep. writer. Yep. So, where did this take you after college? So, uh, while I was still in
1: college, I was just shooting a bunch of stuff. Because one okay. good thing about being in the comedy community and especially having production skills back then was there was no smartphones that were taking video. There was cameras were expensive. So the fact that even though I didn't have a nice camera, I had a camera. I was just shooting pilots and then going to the University of Michigan editing rooms all night and just churning them out.
0: This was pre YouTube, so people right. weren't doing this stuff. So this must have been early two thousands.
1: Yeah, I, I graduated two thousand five. Right. So okay. the
0: only real UGC
1: platform that had any traction was Newgrounds, um, which was all flash stuff. And I did some stuff on Newgrounds, but I needed to pair up with an animator because I wasn't an animator. But I did some writing and voice acting. Um. But at that time, I, I moved to Los Angeles once I graduated with a pilot in hand. I shot a pilot called Party Animals. So Reno 911 just finished season one. So the idea of like semi-scripted television was hot. So I did kind of a Reno 911, but about incoming freshmen who thought they were going to be like the kings of campus. And they were documenting their their first year of college, except of course, they're freshmen they're not cool right but they were all very pompous um so shot that went out to los angeles uh and i got a job at a reality television company doing development which is a a thankless chore that pays nothing we're just writing pitch (laughs) bibles all the time but meanwhile i was showing this to as many people as possible and then after about nine months it ended up selling to Superdeluxe.com, which was turner's uh, website for content wow. where the goal was to upstream the good stuff to adult swim or TBS or TNT or whatever, if it gets enough views. Um, but in the meantime, they were actually paying for content. So that's
0: how I became a showrunner at 23 years old. Wow. Can I ask what the deal was like when, when they, when they bought your script or they bought yeah, your show? It was very complex
1: because at that time I had a production company helping me pitch Right. Um, and I learned a very valuable lesson about having contracts in place, because as soon as the show sold, they were essentially like, "Well, we were the ones that went out and pitched it, and therefore we have ownership of it, and we'll tank this unless you sign this." So I got wow. paid for the first run of episodes. I got paid thirty five hundred dollars. Okay. Which at the time was life changing for me. I was making four hundred bucks a week at this job, by the way. Right. So thirty five hundred bucks was I needed it. I was like sharing a bedroom that was a, in a very lousy apartment in Los Angeles. For how many episodes? It was for six short form episodes. So six okay. five minute episodes. You know, you probably
0: could have gotten more though, right?
1: I think that the production, I mean, I never knew what their deal was, but I bet the production company got paid fifty, sixty thousand, 60,000. Right. And they were just, that was the money that was just like, here you go. You know, they they need to make it worth their
0: deal about this. He's not going to tank the deal. We'll give him enough that, you know, he's he's a young kid.
1: Yeah, exactly. And as, as I learned more and more in Hollywood, it's like, it's not a nice business, right? People are going to take what they can take for the most part, right? People that they're, they're not thinking equitably. They're thinking about how they can get theirs. And that company was thinking about that. So no hard feelings. I know I get it now, I right. just wish that I knew then what I knew now. I would have had my contracts in place before I let them start going out and helping me pitch. So how did you get a company
0: to pitch on your behalf?
1: It was the company I was working for. So I showed him the pilot. They essentially said like, yeah, it's good. We can kind of put it in on the stack. They pitched it to Comedy Central and at the time G4. Uh, there was a little bit of interest at both. It was actually like kind of getting some real interest one one side note on that one of the people who was an actor in it was a 23 year old tim robinson who now has his own netflix sketch show he was on saturday night live for a season Wow! so like there was there was actual talent there and then the rest of the guys on were great two of them started go comedy in ferndale michigan and um adam peacock was in it who's now an la comedian so there's like these people ended up turning out to be like heavy hitters. They were heavy hitters then, but they were also kids. Uh, but yeah, Comedy Central was a hard pass because I was not used to pitching and I did a terrible job. And G4 went pretty far, but yeah, just ended up landing at this digital platform.
0: Which it sounds like it was still a pretty good deal, right? That's right. I, so many people will pitch their work and never find a deal, right?
1: Yeah yeah I mean it, it really launched my career i'm I'm thankful that it didn't go to TV because TV, although a great market if you can get in, it is not the kind of market where you can find stable work easily right like okay. maybe if you work in development or if you work but if you're on the creative side, you can pitch a show you can sell a show it can run for three episodes it can get canceled and then you're right back to pitching shows right so right and, and, and sure it's I'm,
0: very competitive. Very
1: competitive. Yeah. And I learned, especially as I got older, that I, without some stability, I'm really unhappy. I've got, I've got anxiety. I don't like to not know where my next paycheck is coming from. So the TV industry might've eaten me alive, but where I landed in the digital industry, right. As it was starting to grow, I learned a skill that not a lot of people had when I was very young and it really launched my career. I learned how to shoot. I learned how the contracting process worked. I learned how talent releases worked, you know, like soup to nuts production. And that's how, after that show got canceled, how I ended up being the executive producer at a mobile phone video place called Viva vision.
0: So what was that like? You were, you must've been pretty young. You were out of school and mm-hmm. now you're now all of a sudden you're executive producer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, this is the the fun thing about it is, I was it's kind of like being the executive producer of a public access station. So not a lot of people were consuming mobile content at that time. It was pre-smartphone. Our main distribution was Verizon's VCast, which was mostly on flip phones running at three frames per second on screens about that big. But um, it was TV on your mobile phone for sixteen dollars a month. So they had like MTV and CBS and NBC and they were doing like cut downs of the office where you'd watch them in five minute snippets and the quality was terrible. But what we did is supplied the content for their verticalized channels. So we had a Latin youth channel. We had a a Christian youth channel. We had an extreme sports channel and they were essentially like, here's a little bit of money uh, produce as much content as you can with this little bit of money and we'll keep paying you. So we decided what margin we wanted to take. The rest went towards production. And then I had a team of mostly 20 to 25 year olds who knew how to shoot and edit running around Southern California, trying to figure out how to put together a content slate.
0: And you couldn't have been more than like 24 or 25 yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I got the job there, I was 24 and I worked there for about five years. So that was
0: most of my twenties. Yeah what was it like managing people that were pretty much your age or just a little, a little junior to you?
1: I mean, in digital markets, everybody's young, or at least it used to be now it's starting to age up a bit. But at that time, if you worked in a digital department, nobody over the age of 28 was there. Right. Because there just wasn't that the money wasn't there. Right. It was like a put in $1 and get $2 off part. It wasn't like uh, companies nowadays, they're looking to like five X the money on each employee. Right. So yeah, I mean it was it was cool. Frankly, looking back at it, I probably didn't know how to manage people well. And I think that it I probably lost some good employees at the time because I was just guessing at it. I was reading the management books, but like I didn't know how to deal with employees not getting along with each other and how to, I would mostly like put them both in a room and be like, Hey, stop it. You're slowing us down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's probably not the way that I would do it now, but you know, it did teach me how to manage people. and just had to
0: do trial by fire. There are books on that now. Like I've read like, you know, conflict resolution books and you know, there's mm. seminars about it, but like, it's, it's way different in practice, especially yeah. when you're, you know, you have relationships with each person. You're not a third party coming in. I just noticed we didn't actually do a, a little bio on you before, mm. before we come back into the story. Sure. Um, Do you mind, you know, just telling the audience just a little bit about your history in media, in gaming overall, what you do?
1: Yeah. So I'll zip through the stuff we got to already. So, um, grew up in Michigan, went to university of Michigan, computer science to film and video, uh, aspiring comedian started doing digital jobs by day, doing comedy by night, um, went through the mobile thing. iPhone came out, tanked Viva vision. Um, And then I got into, uh, I was the first head of network over at a company called Fullscreen. Uh, I was employee number nine over there. Um, That company grew very, very quickly, sold in three years to AT&T and Peter Chernin Joint Venture. I became CEO over at Studio 71, which was another influencer marketing and management company. I was CEO there for three years. And then I went headfirst into game streaming, Uh, worked at Mob Crush, became head of gaming creators over at Facebook after that. Uh, and now I jumped over to uh, a company called Wormhole Labs, where we're focused on the brave new world of the metaverse, where we've created a metaverse for the real world, which essentially means people can capture environments around them. It drops into a global mesh on a globe. then you can navigate real-world environments as avatars to chat, shop, play, date, broadcast live, put up social media posts, etc. So Wormhole Labs sounds
0: like a virtual universe.
1: It's a, well, we like to say that it's the real world. It's just the digital layer of the real world, right? So if you're on Wormhole and you're looking through your phone, through the Wormhole app, you see things in the real world through the camera of your phone that aren't actually there, but are made interactive through the app. So it's AR elements. You can also see people as avatars that are directly around you. But the real secret sauce is, then I can go to the globe and then I can go to Dubai and then also see things that are around me, locations, So it's people. like you could travel. Yeah. It's like a wormhole, right? It's like, the the idea of a wormhole is it connects two faraway places so that immediately you go from one place to the other right likewise in our technology it's like you can just go through a wormhole and be anywhere in the world that you want and see what you want as long as someone has created the location and people are around or there's stuff at that location then you can go there and you can start interacting
0: to really geek out here i don't know if you were a dragon ball fan at all But uh, in like the 80s, I've been rewatching Dragon Ball actually on Funimation. And, you know, Goku, I think in the Z saga, was able to do something called instant transmission. Right, right. Where he, you know, he'd put his two fingers between his eyes and then he would just teleport to a place that he had been before. If he just thought about it. Nowadays in cartoons, it still holds true that this is something that people are like, this is really cool rick and morty for instance like rick has this portal gun that can take them from one one part of the universe to another it could bring them back home wherever they need to go and so now it sounds like wormhole is providing like a way that anybody can do this in the palm of their hand
1: we talk about rick and morty a lot at this company (laughs) and there's a reason why so we we built it in unity for a specific reason First of all, it can cross devices. So right now it's where it started our launch on smartphones because we needed kind of a creator mode, but really we built it understanding that there's going to be an AR, VR, hologram, whatever else comes out future. So we needed to build it into a software suite that had the heft of three dimensions. Um, but the reason, other reason why we built out Unity is because yes, we will have actual spatial capture of real world environments, But if we wanted to, we can go transdimensional. You can tap on a wormhole and we can send you to the the surface of Mars. It won't be, it might have to be something that's built in unity, right? It might have to be an actual virtualized place, but it's actually very easy for us to do once that place is built, which is kind of sending the avatars to that place instead of this place. So with success and, you know, there's a billion things we want to build in this. So we've got to, you know, Some people joke that they have a five-year plan at their company and we've got a 50-year plan, right? It's like eventually we want it to be the kind of thing where it's like maybe I'll go over to grandma's house to say hi or maybe I'm just going to go to the farthest reaches of the Milky Way and learn about stars, right? Either way, it's the same kind of wormhole wherever you want thing or (laughs) another thing we're super excited about is going forwards and backwards in time. Because we're capturing moments in time where people are chatting or watching videos. If you were to say there was a protest and it happened last night, or I'll give you an example that actually happened last night the Lakers won in downtown Staples Center, right? Read in the news that 30 buildings were damaged. I would love to know how those buildings were damaged and what buildings <laughs> were damaged. I would love to be able to go into Wormhole go back in time, 15 hours, see the avatars that were walking around at that time, see what live videos were being taken and kind of experiencing it as if I went back in time and I'm actually there. So right now everything is on mobile. That's okay. where we decided to start. Um, but we're building with the plans of having it be accessible to all. And frankly, when you, when you're sitting in a position like mine, where you're COO, a lot of my job is ruthless prioritization, right? Because even though we have a very big team who's building, so what we want to do right now is really nail the mobile experience, uh, make sure that everybody's out creating, making sure it has all of the features we want in order for it to be kind of an MVP. And then let's say Apple glasses drop and they become wildly popular overnight. Well, you better believe we're going to be hiring 30 engineers then to do nothing but build that out, like take out the bubble layer, but keep the content layer and just have that become the number one content engine for Apple, right? So right. I mean we're we're very conscious about how we're building for a future of AR, 5G, devices unknown, spatial capture, cloud anchors, like all of these things are things that are going to make our product better and we know they're around the corner.
0: So going back in time for a moment, you know, back to when you're in college, Would you have ever imagined that you would be working this type of job? I couldn't.
1: I mean, none of this existed. That's one of the fun things about working in bleeding edge technology. When you try to define what I do for a living, it's very hard because what I do for a living is whatever the newest thing is, I jump on and I try to figure out. And it's always the intersection of content and technology. So what I started in was like Mobisodes. That was just the bleeding edge thing of the time. And then YouTube influencers were bleeding edge. And then GameStream was bleeding edge. Now Metaverse is bleeding edge. Do I know where my career is going to be in five years? No way, right? You're just, like thought, I start, you're just trying to I,
0: hop onto the trend as early as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of value in that. It's because there's it's not competitive at that time. There's very few people doing it you're taking big risks, but if you can join a company early and ride the trend at the hockey stick growth, like I've had two exits in my career in the past six years, that's really, really rare. But the reason why I did it is because i said, I believe this is the future and I'm going to jump in and try to solve problems that have never been solved before and then ride the wave. And maybe five years from now it's holograms or maybe it's something nobody's even dreamed of yet. But you better believe whatever it is, I'm going to be studying really hard. So how do you study? A lot of it is personal relationships. So I know a lot of other people who are interested in this space. And we do a lot of talking and sharing articles. Um, I'm in a WhatsApp group where it's essentially all kind of tech media futurists. And we all share our LinkedIn posts. And we also share kind of big industry trends. And we look out for each other, right? Like these are all people who, even if I've never met them face to face, if I hear their names, I will put in a good word because they they care deeply about this. I read TechCrunch like it's going out of business. I read Variety and Hollywood Reporters Digital Editions. Tube Filter has been huge for me. I've subscribed to about 50 newsletters. Like when I my hobby is is this as well, which I think is helpful because I work hard and work is hard, right? Especially when you're in a new startup and I've got a baby at home and a pregnant wife and that's all hard. But when I have three hours to myself at night, I'll give an hour of that to video games because obviously, and then right. the other two hours is me researching what the hot new tech is because that's genuinely what I
0: like to do for fun. And I noticed that you know, you're, you're quite an influencer on Twitter and on LinkedIn, Is all of this because of the different WhatsApp groups and different groups that you're involved with, or, you know, how did this come about? So
1: LinkedIn, I was a beneficiary of jumping into it very early. So I've been really focusing on LinkedIn for about six years now. Um, And it was kind of before a lot of people were creating content. Most people, when they were putting up posts on LinkedIn, it was like, Hey, I work for this company and this is why my company is great. And I was kind of one of the earlier ones, especially in digital content that was sharing articles and opinions. So I was kind of like micro blogging based on what was going on in the industry. So if like, for example, like the government said they were going to shut down TikTok, I would then share an article about the government shutting down TikTok. And I would say, the government's not going to shut down TikTok. Here are the four reasons why it's not going to happen And then I found myself getting a lot of shares at my meta commentary of this. Right. um, And a lot of likes and a lot of comments. And frankly, I was starting to get things like job offers and warm leads for the company I had. And I went, wow, this is, I'm terrible at networking events. I hate talking to strangers, but on LinkedIn, it's great. Like strangers come to me and I can engage with their posts. So that's how that grew really quickly on Twitter. I, I was cheating a little bit. I worked with influencers for seven years. So naturally a fair amount of them, I would end up in the background of their pictures and they'd tag me or they would respond to one of my tweets right? because like I was a manager of theirs or like I was managing a manager of theirs. And now that I'm not kind of as front lines with influencers as I used to be, and I'm more on the business side, I'm starting to get more people adding me who are business folks. And all of the influencer fans are starting to
0: trail off. So it's great. And it, there's a lot of power in having a following. People off the street are going to say, oh, wow, you you have a following or a reach of 40,000 people, or, which is huge. But you know, you and I both know that it doesn't matter what the number is. It matters more about the value of the network.
1: Yeah. And frankly, when I go to a convention, I will always have at least five people come up to me that I don't know and say, you're Phil Ranta. I follow you on LinkedIn right? It happens again and again and again. And it's because, although I, I mean, I don't have as many followers on LinkedIn as I do, I'm maybe like 12,000, but all of them are digital media enthusiasts. Right. So it's a very specific kind of follower that I have. So when I go to a, like a, a vid summit or something like that, you know, out of my 12,000 followers, probably 600 of them are there.
0: Right. Yeah, that's very cool. I, um, I, I started using LinkedIn around the same time as you, but it wasn't valuable for me for the first Mm -hmm. year or two because of exactly what you're saying. Like I wanted to be a talent agent more than anything, Mm -hmm. you know, and I saw a linear path of being a talent agent as working at a talent agency, right? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yep. And so trying to get in touch with these talent agents was near impossible. Yeah. You call the agency, you try. You find their email, you guess their email, you try to add them on LinkedIn and nobody got back to me. And even if they did, um, add me on LinkedIn, they wouldn't write me back. Right. And if they didn't have any content to engage with, it became very difficult for me to build any sort of relationship. Yeah. So it just came down to like, you know, taking small trips from Montreal to New York or from Montreal to Toronto, or I was living in Nottingham, England, and I would go to London and hand out my resume and, Mm -hmm. you know, just try to meet with whoever you can until, you know, one of the darts stick. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And frankly, when I first started working in talent, I had the same issue because when I, so I worked tangentially to talent when I was in the mobile industry, like we did some deals with larger brands or creators, but you know, not a ton. When I first started working at full screen, suddenly it was like, well, you have to go talk to the biggest stars in the world. I didn't know any of them. I didn't know their managers. I didn't know their agents. So my LinkedIn strategy was take as many coffees as I can with agents assistants so I would just, you know, morning, noon and night, I would take lunches, breakfasts, lunches, coffees and drinks with as many of them. And at that point, like I was single, I didn't have a wife yet. So I was like, I, if I was 14 hours a day on full screen, that was no problem. And I generally was in those early days. Right. So I was just constantly hammering the assistants and a lot of those assistants within one or two years became agents and I started to get to know some of the agents cause they knew we were throwing around money and doing deals, but really it's that assistant class that are the ones that I'm still close with because I kind of followed them through their career for the past 10 years. In fact, some of the people who I hired fresh out of college at places like full screen studio 71 are now agents at places like CAA and UTA, right? Because that business moves very fast. If you're a high performer.
0: I love that you said that, and it kind of goes back to someone else that I interviewed a few weeks back, Erin Norajanian. She was she's a marketing director in Live, and yeah. we were talking a little bit about like what kind of jobs you should be taking outside of school. Like, is should I take a coordinator position or uh, an assistant position? And I this was one of the pieces of content that I shared on LinkedIn because I thought it was so interesting that she said it's better to take a job that's lower paying but with mm-hmm. when you're where you're an executive assistant like verse, versus um being a coordinator with a slightly higher pay. Mm-hmm. So you take the you take the executive assistant position because you would end up networking with all of the executives of the executive that you assist. Right. And then when you get promoted, you have all of those contacts plus all the contacts of other people who are coordinators and assistants. Yeah.
1: Well, I got one piece of advice early in my career that I think is kind of relevant to that conversation. That's really followed me through, which is the difference between somebody who moves up in any industry and the people who don't move up is what you do when everybody else goes home. Right. The vast majority of people have jobs, and even if they're passionate and great during their jobs, they're waiting to get in the car and go home. Right. Whereas I treated most of my career as if everybody else is working eight to five, I'm working eight to six. And what I do in that last hour is go take my a work to an a plus work. And if I don't have any other work to do there, I walk around the building and learn. Right. And that's part of the executive assistant thing, right? It's like education in the long run is far more valuable than the paycheck now. And like I said, my first job out here is $400 a week in a place like Los Angeles. I was sharing a bedroom. There were nights where I did not have money for food. And my, luckily one of my roommates was a PA on sets. So he would take all the extra food at the end of the night. So if they like had Spanish rice, we'd eat that for a week, um, And like, we would like, we had a Nintendo Wii, and that was our only form of entertainment. We played Nintendo Wii all the time. That was all we had to do because all of us were so broke. But also at that time, I was trying to be a comedian. So I would go to work. I'd work 10, 11 hours a day. I would, you know, come home, grab food, or just like grab something on the road or most of the time, just took something from the kitchen at work, <laughs> like take three granola bars. And that was my dinner. And Some, I'd go somebody's straight to the lunchbox.
0: Doesn't have their name on it. Oh, 100%. A sucker. <laughs>
1: I'm like, I'm broke. I need this more than they do. So here I go. But then I would go straight to the comedy clubs. And then I would, you know, put your name on the list, wait three hours, get your five minutes of stand up in, hang out with the club promoters afterwards to see if you can get more time and then be home at 2am and repeat. So, right. I probably could have been better at video games if I didn't have that part of my life, but you know, (laughs) through my twenties, it was when people say, well, I work 12 hour days through my twenties. I'm like, well, if you combine my work and then my extra work of comedy, I was working like 16, 17 hour days Right. Most, most weekdays, right. And then on the weekends I was doing
0: comedy. Yeah. Which is, which is actually surprisingly pretty normal in cities (laughs) like New York or Los Angeles.
1: Especially when you're kind of dual tracking goals. Right. So I had to work harder. Right. I was like writing jokes at my desk at work, hoping my boss wouldn't see, trying to memorize it as I was driving to the club and then, you know, see if I could spit it out,
0: you know? So at what point in your career did you decide to work on a cruise ship? Because that's so unconventional for somebody of your position now.
1: Yeah, it was um, uh, after the mobile phone job ended. So the smartphone, the iPhone came out and it just tanked our business because people weren't paying for content anymore. Apps were free.
0: Yeah, who would pay 16 bucks a month to use a Nokia flip phone to watch a five minute blurry Spanish video? Right.
1: Totally. When you could download at that time, you know, for $15, you can get a Hollywood movie that actually looked pretty good on your, right? Like we were right. screwed. There was no chance. And, and there was piracy. Doing...
0: Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah, They could pirate things. There was ringtones and wallpapers where, you know, we were able to charge $1.99 for those things before. And now they're free on the iPhone, like tanked our business. So I uh, lost my job there. And started going around to every other digital company in the world, knocking on their door and said, Hey, look at me. I've got all of this experience with scaled low budget content, ringtones and wallpapers. And this was pre kind of YouTube monetization. And they were like, what do? no, what do we do with you? <laughs> there was, there was like, there was no room for true user generated content in a professional setting. Right. So I, I had to adapt. So immediately I went, I started auditioning for like acting roles. And I was a terrible actor. It was totally embarrassing. I tanked on every single one. I was like submitting writing packets. Like at one point I was submitting for like fast food jobs and stuff. I needed money. I was
0: broke. Right. Um, and at and least th- that way you'd be able to eat some of the food as well.
1: Exactly. Right. <laughs> I know that I remember one of the most embarrassing things. This was in my late twenties after I had just held the equivalent of a VP position for five years uh, I applied at a grocery store that was across the street from where I was living, and they rejected me because I couldn't speak Spanish as well as English. And I'm like, I am 28 years old, and I I was just handling multi-million dollar budgets. And I can't get a job at a grocery store, like yeah, stocking the shelves or
0: or bagging someone's groceries.
1: Right. I didn't like. I didn't know what to do. I was totally screwed. And thank God, I was performing at Second City Hollywood a lot, um, and I had a regular Saturday show with my uh, improv team, and we were getting to be pretty well known. And they did cruise ship auditions, so I just took a shot and I acted my ass off for a couple hours, and luckily I got it. And it, it really did save me. It didn't even pay that much, but it was enough to just kind of get by. And while I was on the cruise ships, I was beefing up what I needed to fill in in my digital world, which at that time, it was t- in 2011, I decided to start a podcast network. because so I was like, podcasts of the future. And of course, I was a little too early. I started something called Comedy Podcast Network, aggregated together five podcasts and started going out to brands and saying like, We've got a combined listenership of 60,000 streams a month. Will you pay for this? And at that time, no one was advertising a a non-celebrity podcast. So door slammed my face, couldn't get that off the ground. But after my second cruise contract, that's when I found a job at Fullscreen, which frankly at that time was such a small company, I was essentially jumping in at entry level there too. Nobody was making money there, but Mm
0: -hmm. it grew around us. And then finally I got back to
1: making enough money to live.
0: You know, I want to talk about this cruise ship thing a little bit more. Yeah, totally. So which cruise line were you on? This was Norwegian cruise lines. I was with the second city troupe, which
1: was kind of part improv, part sketch. And then in between miscellaneous, like they would do like dancing with the cruise ship stars and the comedians would be the judges and you'd make jokes and, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Right. How many hours a week did you work? Because I've been on cruise ships before. I've been on Norwegian cruise lines. I might've even seen one of your sets. Sure. How many hours a week would you, would you guys normally work? Five, (laughs) which was pretty nice. So even though I complained about how little we were getting
1: paid, if you looked at the hourly, it's probably a better paying job than I have now. Um, But yeah, we would do two main stage sketch shows, which was amazing because the, you have a captivated audience. You're at sea. So you'd have audiences from like 800 to 1,200 people. Right. Which if you weren't a celebrity comedian, you don't get that anywhere else. It sounds like a phenomenal job. It was great. And then you did uh, two one-hour improv sets at the bar, one family show, and then one adult show. Even though you can't really be that adult, it was like you could do sexual innuendos. And, you know, it was a little more fun. And then we did a murder mystery improvised luncheon which was like semi-scripted. Like you kind of knew the path and then you'd have like audience members fill in suggestions for things that would determine the outcome of the murder mystery. <laughs> and then the rest of the time it was like Jim tan laundry. Right. I sat in my room, played a lot of Nintendo DS. I read a ton of books. I watched West wing seasons one through seven all the way through in two weeks. That's a dedicated, that was like 11 hours a day of watching West wing for two straight weeks. That's great. Like you just had all the time in the world. You didn't have internet. You didn't have phone reception. You were just like, it was just you and whatever you can do on the boat.
0: But the reason I wanted to ask about it is because, you know, you worked so few hours and you had a skill set, a unique skill set where you're an entertainer mm-hmm. and you only had to work a few hours. You're getting paid pretty well. You're, you know, it's free room and board, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you get yep. all the, all the food you want. All the buffets drink. you want too, which is why
1: you have to go to the gym so much you're so sick of the food by the end cuz it's pretty greasy cruise food. Right. Like I would just go like fill a bowl up with spinach and put some vegetables on it and then go back to my room. <laughs> yeah, like how much like uh like uh chicken tetrazzini can you
0: have before it's <laughs> like I just can't. I have no more. But it sounds incredible because you're getting paid, you're performing to a wide audience, you're getting mm-hmm. to travel, and more importantly, you have the time to devote to reading more, to learning, to strategizing. And especially nowadays, if you had that free time, you could probably do a lot of more work remotely. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, from what I hear on those cruise ships now, they have better internet than they did back then. So like, I can't even imagine what my life would have been like if I would have gone on the cruise ships. Well, if the technology, I couldn't go on now because I got wife and kids, but if I could do like the equivalent of that with the technology of now, I probably would have taken freelance digital optimization gigs and I would have been making thumbnails for YouTube channels. And I would have been like, I had Photoshop skills back then. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like I did learn a lot during that time, but you know, you put your career on hold a little bit when you're literally out in the middle of the ocean. Right. So can't network, which is really tough. Like you can't take as many side hustles, which is tough, but now and you can. it's like, yeah. Now you I mean, now you could, I, if I could work on the cruise ships now, I'd probably be making my cruise ship salary and I'd probably be working another 40 hour a week job.
0: That's brilliant. I think that that's, that's an untapped market. It's a hack. It is. It's a total hack. You know, coming back from the cruise ship, you said that it kind of put your career on hold. You know, you had this VP position at Viva vision that, you know, meant nothing to a grocery store, right. but then, then you ended up as VP for full screen how did you manage to get that job having like a three-year hiatus from anything media?
1: I was fortunate in that I still had skills that not a lot of people had. And that's that I knew digital platforms inside and out. I understood algorithms. I understood thumbnails. I understood titling. I knew some people in the kind of creator world. Um, I had done a lot of YouTube videos. I'd upload a lot of YouTube videos. I know what works and what doesn't work. So the fact that what full screen was doing was completely new and there was very few people who like, nobody was managing digital talent at that time. Very few people actually had professional experience in digital content. Like I was a little bit of a unicorn. um, And finally just the industry caught up to the point where I was employable, right? Like before that, there was just no way to make enough money to employ someone in it. But YouTube had their monetization program launched. There were stars that didn't know what they were doing and they needed somebody to come in and help. Um, so yeah, they hired me in and told me to start scaling a team and
0: it happened very quickly. So, you know, landing a job like this, I presume that your, you know, your lifestyle changed a little bit. You know, I, you don't have to get into specifics about a salary of like a VP position, but how did your lifestyle change a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, so it was incremental when I first started working at, at full screen, it was very much an entry-level salary. At that point, they had a million bucks from Chernin to start the thing, nine employees, one room office out in the Hayden track, one bathroom. The place always smelled terrible, like a tiny conference room that fit about five people and like one phone room. Like it was, that was about as scrappy as a company could be. We're sitting at picnic tables. We're bringing our computers from home. Right. Right. So like my lifestyle at that point didn't really change. I was making more on the cruise ships than I made, you know, starting at full screen at that point. Right. But as the company advanced to the credit of the executives, they realized the value of their employees and they started funding into their salaries a bit more. So they, I finally got up to, you know, it took about a year for me to get up to what I was getting paid at VivaVision. And then it took another year after that where I was getting paid, you know, more, not significantly more, maybe 30% more than I was getting paid at VivaVision. Right. And then by the time it was like acquisition time, I had early stock options from the place. And then that's where, that's where it all becomes worthwhile working at a startup. But yeah, my lifestyle really did go from having to have three roommates all the time and, you know, constantly worrying about budgeting to finally me getting my own apartment. The first time I ever got my own apartment, I was 31 years old. And, but very quickly after I met my, who is now my wife. So although I had my very own apartment, I was, I wasn't alone alone. And then, yeah, we went straight from that apartment to renting a house. And then we went straight from renting that house to buying a house. And that's, you know, that was the progression
0: great. And it's interesting to hear that because especially a lot of the listeners that are tuning in week after week, you know, they're either in college or they're just, you know, they ha- they go to New York with a dream or they go to LA with a dream or Nashville with a dream. And, you know, these markets for, for what people are paying for entry level, it's it, like, you know, it's just not enough to live.
1: Yeah. So to, to open the kimono a bit, I think my first apartment out here, it was a two bedroom I think it was 1500 bucks a month all in. And one guy had a good enough job where he had his own room. And I think he paid $700 of that. And then I shared a room with someone else and we paid the other 800. So mine was 400, which post tax was like, you know, 40% of the money that I made. Yeah. So I had like maybe what $900 if that, a month or less, probably $700 a month to, to spend for on insurance, car, and food. everything. Yeah. I yeah. didn't have health insurance. Like I couldn't afford that. I, In fact, I didn't have car insurance, but don't tell the cops. Uh, <laughs> I just drove my car illegally because it's like, I literally couldn't afford it at that time. Right. But I needed to have a car. So and yeah, I, I can't even imagine going out here nowadays. Like I'm sure that $400 a week jobs can't exist out here anymore. Well, it's probably 500 bucks a week, (laughs) right? Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. In Los Angeles, like it's, if you're making 60 grand a year, you're struggling, right? If you're making 60 grand a year and you have a child, you're starving, right? It's like, there's just the cost of living in Los Angeles is so high that like six figure salaries, or at least a six figure combined income is like, that's what you need in order to have a family. Right. And that's hard to come by. You need to have real skills and you need to be a graduate of a college or you need to work your way up and be scrappy or have three jobs or drive Uber. That's the only way you can make it.
0: Right. 80 grand a year in New York, you have to have roommates unless you want to live, you know, unless you're going to live farther out of the city. But if you want to live in Manhattan, you need, you're going to have two roommates and your guys are going to be paying 15 or 1600 bucks each per month. Right. And it's not going to be a, a nice spot. Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, it's, it's really true. And frankly, it's what's unfortunate
1: about that is it makes generational wealth more important. If you're, if you're a kid whose parents are wealthy enough to pay for you to go to New York, then you can go be
0: a talent agent or you can go try to be an actor. (laughs) Okay. So I actually, I just started asking audience members if they want to share questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question from Megan from New Jersey, mm-hmm. and she wants to know what, in your opinion, virtual experiences play in the next five years for the video game industry.
1: Ooh, big question, big big question. I'll I'll start with VR. So VR is still having the hardware issue where just not enough people have the hardware. The Oculus Quest 2 is quite a leap. and Naturally, I work from Facebook gaming. I'm biased. I got to work closely with the Oculus team. Um, But it's finally getting cheap enough, lightweight enough, and having enough AAA experiences that I think it starts to become viable, although I don't think it's going to hit mass market. Um, I think AR glasses have a much better chance, which although not fully virtualized environments, it's like an enhanced environment. And the reason why I see that as being more valuable is because VR is trying to replace your TV. AR is trying to replace your phone. And the phone is just a bigger market right now and it becomes more useful with utility. When it comes to kind of immersive flat screen gaming, the way that I view virtualization is uh, through community and communication. So look at what's happening to Among Us or uh, Fortnite or anything where it's kind of a social experience layered onto a a gaming experience, right? right? this is going to be the new living room for especially kids because they're going to go home. And instead of saying, I'm going to go over to Billy's house and play, I'm going to say, I'm going to meet up with Billy online in this virtualized environment. And we'll just have context to have fun together. Right. To me, that's about as virtual as it gets sans putting on a headset and like living that right which i think is a little ways away right um so i think we're gonna see immersion go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper frankly that's what we're doing with wormhole right is we're just trying to make the immersion funnel deeper like i want to go online shopping i don't want to go to amazon it's just a feed I wanna go to the small businesses that are right down the street from me. Hey, I can go into Wormhole. I can go doorstep to doorstep and I can go shop, right? To me, that's about immersion and being able to talk to the shopkeep and say, what's in the inventory? You're watching a live broadcast from the shopkeep and see what's happening right there. Like keep going down the immersion funnel. And that's exactly what virtualized environments and gaming is gonna look like.
0: I actually wanna build off of Megan's question. You spoke a lot about trends throughout your career and hopping on to those early and sort of doubling down and learning as much as you can and building community, which I think provides stability in itself. But how do you know the difference between a trend and a fad?
1: That's a great question. And frankly, I have thought that trends were fads and I've thought that fads were trends a bunch of times in my career. Most famously, if you go back through my LinkedIn, maybe three, four five, probably five years at this point, I blasted Snapchat when it came out. I was like, ephemeral content? Why would anyone make ephemeral content? That's ridiculous. Like, it goes away and then you have to make more? Ugh. Too much work. Right. But then what I didn't realize that time is, oh, wait, kids want to send each other messages back and forth that their parents can't see. Right. Of course. Of course, Snapchat is used. It just took me a little bit of a longer time to get there, right? My suggestion to everyone is to treat every fad like it's going to be a trend and then just know when it's going to drop off. Right. So I go through the top 100 social media apps in the app store and download all the ones that I don't have to try at least once every single week. Um, yeah. because I don't know what's going to happen. And frankly, some of them, even the ones that fail, you learn a little something you're like, Oh, it made right. it in the top 100 because it's got this point of view. Maybe if somebody had this point of view, but made it a little beefier in this way, it could become a thing. Um, when you start knowing it's a trend for sure, is when you start, uh, hearing about it from the kids, the cool kids, right? Right. Like I'll give you a, a recent example. That's big. So community, the, uh, the texting platform, um, I heard about it maybe a year and a half ago, the first time. And I heard about it from a really big YouTuber who said, Oh my God! I had a mailing list. And it had like a five percent open rate, and then I started using Community. Had a ninety-eight percent open rate. And as soon as I heard that coming from a popular YouTuber who was using it, I was like, "If I had enough money, I would be investing all of it in Community right now." Right and now, Barack Obama's on Community. Right, like it's it's huge. Right. Um, but yeah, you kind of have to like feel the vibe of the world. Like, don't get too sold on the. BS from the investment community or the BS from the pitch. Something's not it until it's it. And you've got to wait for it to be it. And the way that you know that it's it is when the it people are talking about it.
0: And how do you know that those it people aren't just influencer marketers, especially since you come from that domain?
1: I don't trust anything that's paid, nor should anybody. I think media literacy is one of the biggest issues we have globally right now is like, People don't know what's paid and what's not. They don't know what's true and what's false. They can't tell the difference between good content and bad content. And that's a huge issue. What I've learned is if anything is sponsored or if anything feels like it might be sponsored to immediately ignore every bit of messaging about it, no matter who the person who's saying it is. But what I do trust is if I'm at VidCon and I'm walking down the hallway and a manager who manages three of the biggest YouTubers in the world comes up to me and says, yeah, I'm getting all of my guys on this thing. The reason why? They're making three times as much money on this thing than that thing. Right. That's when I go really deep in and I'm like, okay, I need to research everything. I need to reach out to the CEO of this company and congratulate them on all their work. I right. need to ask how I can help, right? That's when you can be pretty sure. And I'm still wrong a lot, but that's helped me really kind of ride trends in a smarter way.
0: It sounds like the the method that you take Um, every week down, you know, looking at the top 100 apps in the app store and downloading the ones just to try them out and maybe Mm -hmm. even research the companies that you're like, you know what, this app seems to be doing something a little bit different. That's a really good way that costs nothing to all of you out there that are listening to, you know, whether you want to get into gaming, into app development, into film and TV, you know, these are really great skills that you can develop now. And a lot of great knowledge that you can gain.
1: Oh, yeah. You're right. It's free. And frankly, every owl education is free. Now go to W3 schools. If you want to learn how to code, yeah. like start reading ad age every day. If you want to be a marketer, this is better education than you'll get. Most classrooms. Like one of the things that I love personally, because I'm a LinkedIn fiend is I've got the premium LinkedIn learning account. Every once in a while, I'll just start being like, you know what? I manage about 60 unity developers right now. I should probably learn some more about unity. I'll pop on a LinkedIn learning class, watch it in the background while I'm doing things during the day and I'll retain 10, 20 tidbits. Right. And then those things will come out, right? Do that every day. You're going to be a freaking genius after three years, right? Right. Just constantly having professorial messages thrown at you eight hours a
0: day. Even if you don't retain it all, that education's really, really important. So you mentioned about getting deeper and more immersive into gaming. Do you think that games like you know for instance like i don't i'm sure you're familiar with like runescape do you think a game like that like these mmorpgs are going to become extinct or are they going to just have to uh, adapt and evolve to this industry
1: the every game publisher right now is thinking about every game more like an mmorpg than they were before like even if i just got the avengers game for the playstation 4 i haven't had a lot of time to play it but social connection and friend connection and being able to play with somebody is front and center in that game, which has no reason to be front and center in that game, right? The single right. player is fine. I don't need other people to join with me on my missions. In fact, it, it makes it too easy. But the reason why is because every platform is realizing that the way that you get retention and the way that you get friends to encourage friends to buy other, buy their versions of it is by making sure that your social elements are there, Right. And I think more and more, it's going to be quite the opposite. You're going to see games becoming more and more free. You're going to see microtransactions becoming more and more important. And you're going to see social factors being put even before the gameplay factors. Because everyone wants to be a platform, not a game. Fortnite is a platform, not a game. They've got their creative mode. You can hang out. You can do it right. Like right. they can build they whatever the, the hell they want on it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The Travis Scott concert was huge and it was fun. They did yeah. a great job with that thing. And they're going to, everybody is now saying, huh, how do I become like Fortnite through the lens of my idea? Right. Right. So yeah, I think that, you know, what people should be fearing more than anything is the Facebooks of the world, or for that matter, the wormholes of the world, thinking about the Fortnites of the world and the Roblox of the world as competitors, because as social moves towards a gaming context more and more, is there room for just social, right? Maybe. Right. But frankly, if I was 15 right now and you were to say, Hey, do you want to go on Facebook and like leave a post and chat? Or do you want to chat with your friends while you're shooting other people and having fun and have this context? Right. No competition there. Right. But also social time and gaming has always been a thing. Like, I don't, I don't know if this made its way up to Montreal, but I grew up in Michigan. Euchre was a very big thing. It's a card game played with four people it's kind of like hearts um okay. my grandma who's now 90 uh we would play euchre with her the reason why we play euchre was not because of playing euchre we would play euchre because it forced four people to sit around a table and chat with a very easy game that everyone knew how to play well like we didn't care who won it was just our social time and now that we've got this hyper connected world you can have your social time just like my grandma did and just like she probably did with her parents, right? Like board games, right? What, why do parents want to play board games with their kids? It's because it's forcing everyone to get together and be social with each other. Right. So like this isn't new. Like people have always used gaming as a context for communication. What it is now is hypercharged because you can drop in on a Fortnite where you're playing with 100 people at once instead of playing with six people in Monopoly. Right. Um, and you don't necessarily need to know them. So you're forming new social connections, which is hyper, hyper, hyper valuable.
0: Well, Phil, I can bend your ear all day and ask you <laughs> questions, but, but I, I know you're a busy guy. I thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story.
1: Yeah, you bet. And if you want to know more, I'm at Phil Ranta on all social
0: platforms. Thanks so much, Phil. You bet. Thank you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I just wanted to take a quick moment and shout all of you guys out who have been tuning into the podcast week after week, especially those of you who have taken, you know, 30 or even 60 seconds out of your day to write me personally on any of the socials on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and really, really, really those of you who have left me a review on Apple Podcasts. I love that. Thank you for sharing your love and expressing how each episode has positively affected your path. The whole purpose of this podcast is to bring people up, give them great resources. So thank you so much. This is the kind of support that's keeping me going. Lastly, if there's anybody that you know that has an inspirational story that would maybe make a great guest, please reach out to me on any of our platforms and I'd be happy to get in touch with them. Again, thanks everyone. Much love and stay safe.